I recently read a story about an interim pastor. He went to a church, and he hadn't been at that church for just a little bit, so people didn't really know him. They, they, if they ran into him on the street, they wouldn't recognize him. But, you know, there's one thing about being an interim pastor. So I've been told, and I will tell you I'm going on testimony, not because I've never been an interim pastor. But a lot of times those men come into church fellowships, and they have the ability to see things that the people who've been there a long time don't see. Because they come in with fresh eyes. They come in and able to see it. They come in able to sense what needs to be taken care of. A lot of times the interim pastor has more clout or authority or, or expectation that he can fix things that needs to be fixed. And obviously this interim pastor thought so. One Sunday morning, he got up. He didn't take a shower. He didn't brush his teeth. He uh, uh, didn't put on any deodorant. He went to his garage and he found some old, dirty, stinky clothes. He put them on and he got, then he went and he got a grocery basket and he stuffed it full of cardboard. Kind of looked like our bag lady this morning. That's what I'm thinking. I, I did say in the VBS meeting that it concerned me a little bit how easily Babe slipped into that bag lady motif. You understand what I'm telling you? He slipped in that bag man motif, and, he, and about five minutes before the service, he rolled that shopping cart into the back door right to the back seat, and he sat down. You could have heard a pin drop, and nobody said anything. And then finally, one of the ushers walked back to him and said, uh, Sir, you'll have to leave. And so he got his cart, and he went out the back door. And he came around in that church and he went through the private entrance to his office, which also was an entrance. I don't know if you remember church buildings used to be this way where the pastor studied. You could walk directly into the worship center from the study. And he didn't change clothes. He just left his basket out there and came and took his place on the platform. And in just a second, he got up and he preached from this text. I would think that he had a captive audience. You see, you see when I, when, I, when I think about this and I think about the captive audience he had that day, I think how can people make excuses for showing favoritism and prejudice and big, bigotry? And I, in my mind, I'm thinking they can't. Now, you make, no, you make no mistake, they will, but they shouldn't. I suggest to you that in the context of church history, James knew a little bit about showing, people showing favoritism in the body because, he, as I said, he was a pastor of, uh, or one of the pastors at, at the downtown church in Jerusalem. It was a large, mega, inner city, multi-staff church there in Jerusalem. Somebody suggested that it may have had over 20,000 members at one time, and I'm sure that James had borne witness of favoritism. Every time I read this text, I think back over my 35 years in ministry, and I am reminded that how many times I have spoken to people in that 35 years only to hear these words. I can't worship. I can't come to, to church. can't be in services. I don't have anything to wear. So let's tonight. Now, now before, I, before I proceed with this, there are a lot of forms of favoritism. There are a lot of forms of bigotry. There's a lot of forms of uh, uh, prejudice. 
And I want, I want to say this to you so everybody don't get up and charge the platform. I don't particularly perceive that the clothing issue is the deal with our congregation. So you can just take that and slide it aside, but I do believe there's a lot of other deals that border on favoritism and, and bigotry and, and uh, um, prejudice. So let's just kind of work our way through this. What I want to suggest to you is I'm going to, select, I'm going to make this as personal as I can. Because when I studied it, I wanted it to be personal for me. And I began with simply my standard. My standard. I use that pronoun because it is very personal with me. It should be very personal with you. You see, whether we wear the face of love or whether we wear the face of bigotry and favoritism and prejudice, it's a very personal matter to us. And it was a very personal matter to him because he began with Verse 1, he called my brothers. And then in verse, uh, um, well, I lost it. And then another place, he says, my dear brothers. I'll find it about the time I go home tonight. Oh, verse 5, listen, my dear brothers. He thought it was very personal. And he gives us a clear evidence that this, please listen, this is a message not for lost people. This is a message for people who have heard the gospel who have felt and sensed the working of Jesus in their life, the Holy Spirit convicting them of their sin. It is a message for those who have then said yes to Jesus as Jesus began that work. It is a, it is a message for people who have been changed by the power of God. And so, my first, the first part of my standard is what he says right here. Folks, my brothers, hold your faith. He tells us to hold our faith. Now, I think that's kind of wonderful picture because most of you who got married had this in your wedding vows at some place. To have and to hold from this day forward. To have and to hold from this day forward. It speaks of possession and it speaks of commitment. When James tells us to hold our faith, he has given us the same thought. In other words, please listen, you got to have it before you can hold it. You know, with what I'm saying, have I lost anybody yet? You have to have it before you can hold it. Now, now here's what I want to do. I just want to take you through some things that we need to think about regularly. What does the Bible tell us about having our faith, getting that faith? We can go to Romans. And Romans 3.10 says, it does, it does. Romans 3.10 says, as it is written, there is, no not one, there is no one righteous, not even one. This is the journey to get this faith. And then in 3.23, it says, maybe it'll say there, for all have sinned and, and fall short of the glory of God. And then in 6.23, it says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, thus far, he's given us all the bad news. And then you move back to chapter 5, Romans 5.8. It says, God proves his own love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now we're talking. And then he goes, you could go over to Paul's writings to the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, and he says, "For by grace are you, you are saved through faith. This is not from your it is God's gift, not from works, so you can't brag about it. Now, thus far, we kind of like that, but here is the clincher. 21st century people who named the name of Christ, here is the clincher. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, If anyone is in Christ, 
That's your condition. If you are in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things are passed away. And look, new things have come. Now, if that doesn't, if that doesn't catch us to examine ourselves frequently, remember what Jesus said in John 3, 3. In th- John 3, 3, he says, unless you're born again, unless you are born again, You'll not see the kingdom of God. Now, if you're born again, what happens to you? Well, Ezekiel, we can go back in the Old Testament. It'll tell us that. Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, to have to hold one's faith, one must have a faith. And that faith that one has must be a life-changing faith in Jesus Christ. If it is not a life-changing faith, then it is not a true faith. A true faith in Jesus Christ is like a rebirth. I mentioned earlier about the reincarnation thing, and that kind of, as I was studying through this, that kind of kind of caught my attention. I hate to use that word because so many, so many uh, uh, Buddhists and all and Hindus they they go overboard with this, but don't you think about it. In reincarnation, the concept is the body dies, the spirit leaves that body and comes back in a new body. You got me? Have I lost anybody yet? Spiritual reincarnation is literally where our old self dies, our old spirit dies, and then he gives us a new spirit. I will give you a new spirit. I will give you a new heart. It means, it means we're changed from the inside out. You see, being saved, and I say this so much because it is so predominant in this culture, being saved is a life-changing event. Now, I ask you, has God changed your life? If he has, before you say amen, if he has, what did he call you to? Not just what did he save you from. Everybody in this room who knows the Lord, if we know the Lord, he has called us to express his grace and extend his glory. How are we doing that? If we're going to hold the faith, we have to have the faith. And he calls us to have it and to hold it, possess it, hang on to it, and do it without showing favoritism. So my standard is very simply that I hold the faith and I hate the favoritism, number two, that I hate the favoritism. You know, favoritism shows itself, rears its ugly head in many ways. And none of those ways are acceptable to our Heavenly Father. When we express favoritism, we break his heart. Now, the illustration that James uses is about rich and poor. The haves and the, and the have-nots. The desirable and the undesirable. But just know that, that favoritism can be about the color of someone's skin. It can be about the cleanliness of someone's clothes. It can be about the choices that someone makes. It can be about... The longevity of, a, of a, being acquainted with somebody. There are many possibilities. And yet James implores us to practice, to hold, to show, to display, to demonstrate our faith by not 
showing favoritism. In fact, I believe this. I believe James is saying you can either show your faith or you can show favoritism. But you can't show both. I found a sad story. You know, for years, we, you know, we preachers, we, we, sometimes we hear a, a, a quote. We hear a quote, and we hop on it, and we never look for the, for the full story. And for years, I've quoted Mahatma Gandhi as saying, I'd become a Christian if it weren't for Christians. Or you know, another extrapolation has been, the uh, uh, only thing wrong with Christianity is Christians. But do you know the story behind that? Most of us know that name, Mahatma Gandhi, Indian leader. Literally tried to uh, um, change things with, he wasn't particularly uh, violent, but he pushed for civil unrest. When he was in college, the story is told that he read the gospel seriously and that he contemplated converting to Christianity. Because, see, his people were in this class caste system, and he knew that was destructive to his people. And in his mind, he had developed the idea that the only way, or that Christianity could be the way to overcome the class caste system that they had in their country. So one day, he decided to go to a church, a Christian church, and talk to the minister about converting Christianity he walked in the door and the usher wouldn't seat him and told him to go worship with his own kind of people I suggest to you that a lot of times like that usher <laughs> ushers always take it on the chin I suggest that like that usher, when we show favoritism, when we show prejudice, that we betray Jesus. That, that with our actions and what we demonstrate, we literally not only betray Jesus, but we turn people from coming to saving knowledge of our Savior. The depth and impact, the depth of the impact from favoritism, from prejudice, from bigotry reaches from the gates of heaven to the gates of hell. And it's at our doorstep. The standard is hold your faith. Hold on to your faith. Jesus was never a bigot. In fact, you look at how he treated women. He, has probably, he probably did more to, to elevate the position of a woman in a, in a male-dominated society than any other figure in history. He bridged gaps and hated the favoritism and hated enough to be militant about it to help people understand how offensive it is to our Savior. My standard. The second thing I see here creeping up personally is my sin. You see, the truth is, it calls it a sin. 
He says, if you show favoritism, verse 9, you commit sin. Somehow, this sin of prejudice, of favoritism, of bigotry has a way of creeping into our friendships. It has a way of creeping into our fellowship. Because it has a way of creeping into our faith. Because of the same reason that was spoken about the rich young ruler this morning, because of our fallen nature. When I see favoritism in the Bible, my sin takes two forms. Now hold on. First of all, when, when favoritism, when I show favoritism, my sin victimizes people. Victimizes people. I mean, think about it. The poor man came in. You have no problem with that, do you? The poor man came in and said, you know, why the, why the rich man and said, said, sit up here in the, in the preferred seat. The poor man said, oh, you just stand over there. Or maybe you can sit down at my feet. And we make that guy feel like that he is nothing to God. Well, you go, yeah, Brother Jerry, that victimizes people. But listen, on the same, on the same order, when a rich person, someone wealthy in this world's goods comes into the church and we give them an exalted, a preferred status in the church, we victimize them as making them feel like they are better before God than they actually are. Because last time I read this word, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. My dad taught me a long time ago, everybody puts on their pants one foot at a time. And in the eyes of Jesus, you will not find, you will not find someone having preferred status. There is no red at the foot of the cross. There is no yellow at the foot of the cross. There is no black. There is no white at the foot of the cross. There is no rich. There is no poor at the foot of the cross. All there are is lost and saved. And if I put it like, like I sense it, there are those folks who are at the foot of the cross and have been redeemed, and there are folks at the foot of the cross who need to be redeemed. When I show favoritism, I victimize people. When I show favoritism, my sin violates principle. Violates principle. Not only does it victimize people. And you go, well, what principle are you talking about? Well, you find it right here. If you really carry out the royal law prescribed in Scripture. Now, what is the royal law prescribed in Scripture? I find it back in Matthew chapter 22. Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. They came together in the same place, and one of them said, an expert in the law. I've always wondered about that. Ask him a question to test him. Not to find out, to test him. Teacher, what is the great commandment? Which is the commandment in the law is the greatest? He said, love the Lord God with all your hearts, with all your soul, all your mind. And this is the greatest and most important commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now watch this. All the law and the prophets hang, depend on these two commandments. You see, masterfully, Jesus encapsulated the all of the Ten Commandments in those two. To show the face of favoritism and prejudice and preference in any form is to violate the principle of God because he said, love me first. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, our neighbors, and do you remember in another place in Scripture, they come back at Jesus and they said, who's my neighbor? And he's told the story of the Good Samaritan. Well, certainly those Jews didn't think the Samaritans were their neighbors. And the takeaway from that was everybody's your neighbor. It doesn't matter how they talk. It doesn't matter how they act. It doesn't matter how they live. Everybody is your neighbor. When we exalt someone or when we devalue someone based on earthly standards, we have shown favoritism. My standard, my sin. I want us to use a word that we don't use very much, my solace. Solus, S-O-L-A-C-E. We don't use that very much, but it means comfort, consolation, relief. So, what is it, or so, how is it that I will not show favoritism? How do I get relief? I mean, we do this. I would like to ask you to nod your head or something. How many of you just know that that it's in you. I mean, it's in me. It's in me. As far as prejudice, red, yellow, black, and white, I've not really had that because in junior and high school, we integrated our schools. We had no problem. Some of you Alabama fans, you remember a guy that played for the Bear from 72 to 76. He played the same position as Wilbur Jackson on the other unit. His name is Willie Shelby. In my high school, Willie Shelby and I were about as good a friend as you get. Now, don't go back and tell my mom she's dead. She'd come back from the dead to haunt me. But Willie and I used to get in my truck. Are there any teenagers in here? Would you put... Oh, yeah. I was talking about age, not IQ, Don. <laughs> Willie and I would get in the truck, and we would skip school on Friday for the ball game. Before the ball game. Now, all the other guys would get caught, but we wouldn't because Willie and I would go to the pool hall. The principals always went to the pool hall down in the white section of town. Most of you, the younger folks, don't know what I'm talking about. You older folks do. Willie and I'd go to the pool hall in the black section of town. Our white principals would not go down there. I, had to, I would be the only white guy. I just never had that issue with skin color personally. But even though I don't have that particular problem, there are problems that I have with prejudice. What's yours? What is it that keeps you from showing prejudice and favoritism and, and to the point of bigotry? What is it that keeps you tied up from being like Christ? I'm just going to suggest two things to you. There are action steps. And this will help you not just in this area. It will help you and me in everything we do. First of all, act like a believer. If you're going to hold the faith, act like it. Don't compartmentalize it and have your Sunday best behavior on Sunday and then your Monday to Saturday behavior on Saturday. I have a friend who, uh, uh, who is a professional gambler. Known him a long time, and that would be a long story for me to tell you the whole thing. But he was saved and I baptized him. No, it didn't change his ideas about gambling. And that, again, that's a long story. But 
when we sat down to talk, one of the things he wanted to make sure of is that I didn't believe that he thought it was okay for a man to go gamble his essential money away. He said, that's a sin. He said, and when you, and when you take from your family, you have now not acted like a believer. Now, he's got his problem with gambling. That's fine. We all got our problems. In the process of talking with him, he made this statement to me one time. He said, you just can't let your religion and your business co-mingle. Now, that was an interesting conversation. Because you see, our relationship to Christ, it shouldn't be about co-mingling. Our relationship to Christ should be our normal daily walk. Where we're acting just like Jesus acted. We, we may need to write it. We may need to read again as a church. That book, uh, uh, In His Steps. Because in that, as that man dropped dead in front of that, from that pulpit, it shook that congregation so much that they began to ask the question, what would Jesus do in their business, in their finances, in every part of their life? And then they wouldn't just ask the question to figure it out. Then they would do just like Jesus did. But may I say this to you? Favoritism will invalidate your faith. Lack of favoritism, lack of bigotry and prejudice will validate your faith. Scripture is very clear that we should speak and act like those who will be judged by the law of freedom. That law of freedom means Christ has set us free. He who the Lord has set free is free indeed. Speak and act like those who are free in Christ. Don't be bound up by culture. Act like a believer. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. Now, if we believe that, then we should be wanting to become more like him. One of my favorite songs, Andrew, we never sing it anymore. It's an old Wayne Watson song, an old, old Wayne Watson song, even probably before you were born, big guy. And it goes like this. One day Jesus will call my name. As days go by, I hope I don't stay the same. I want to get so close to him that it's no big change on that day that Jesus calls my name. That's acting like a believer. But not only act like a believer, apply Bible truths. I think verse 13 is a sobering verse. Judgment is without mercy. Does that catch anybody's attention? Judgment is without mercy to the one who hasn't shown mercy. Why don't you just think about it this way? What did you do? What did you do to deserve the mercy God gave you? What did I do? Nothing. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were sinners, while we were undeserving, while we were unlovely, Christ died for us. The law of freedom is found only in Jesus. It seems to me that little favoritism here and there that we don't think harms us ultimately destroys us. Destroys our witness. Destroys our purpose. 
helps us and it and it blocks us from seeing what we're supposed to do and and be it has to be that the reason that so many of our churches have either plateaued or started declining and let me just say that those terms don't mean near as much as this that so many of our churches are not reaching lost people and discipling saved people is that favoritism, bigotry, sin of some kind has crept in. I found this story, and I'm going to read it to you. I don't read many things to you, but I'm going to try to read this to you. And I hope you will see the, how this parallels the modern-day church. On a dangerous seacoast where, sh- where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude life sta- life, little life-saving sa- station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, and only a few devoted members, but they kept watch, constant watch over the sea, and with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for those lost at sea. Many lives were saved through this wonderful little station, so that it became famous. Some of those who were saved and various others around the surrounding area wanted to become associated with this station and give of their time and money and effort for the support of its work. New boats were bought and new crews were trained. The little life-saving station grew. Some of the new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and so poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the, la- as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in an enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. And they redecorated it beautifully and furnished it exquisitely Because they used it as sort of a club. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decoration. And there was a a liturgical life-saving boat in the room where the initiation of new members took place. About this time, a large boat was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some had black skin, and some had yellow skin. The beautiful new clubhouse was considerably messed up. So the property committee immediately had a shower house built outside of the club, where the victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned before coming inside. At the next meeting, there was a split in club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities as they thought thought it to be unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal life of the club. Some members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. 
But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives of all various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As time went by, the new station experienced the same change that had occurred in the old. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was founded. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you will see a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters, but most of those people drown. I would to God that we not become like that life-saving station. Let's pray.